Well, good morning, everybody. What a joy to be with all with all of you here today, and it was just a, a, a joy yesterday as well to meet a lot of new faces and really look forward to meeting some new folks today. I think you all get extra credit, by the way, for coming on a day like this. I think this has been such a brutal winter, and uh, the sun is out. I even heard some birds chirping on the way to church, so... Yeah, the Lord is good. And um, yesterday, as part of the Restore Conference, we started a journey together, a, a, um, a discussion on inner healing. And what we talked about yesterday to start off was the power of choice. Did you know the choices that we make have a lot of power, don't they? Adam and Eve made some poor choices. They had the ability to choose life or death, and because of Adam's poor choice, we're still feeling the ripple effects from that all these centuries later, aren't we? The law of sin and death had entered the world. Death had come into the world. We still have the power of choice that, that Adam did. And as we discovered and, and, and explored together yesterday, this, I believe, is the most important aspect of inner healing, is this, to choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the bottom line. That is the first and most important aspect of inner healing. And I think the second aspect, the second most critical aspect of inner healing is this, to follow God's commandments and obey God's commandments. And if we did that, if the world did that, we wouldn't even be having a, a discussion on inner, inner healing today, would we? So other things that we talked about were, uh, were fear, the power of fear and how fear is one of the most powerful tools that the enemy uses to inhibit healing. And we explored that the antidote, the remedy to fear, is the fear of God, which I've heard different definitions. My favorite comes from Brennan Manning, who says fear is this. It's the silent wonder, the radical amazement, the affectionate awe at the infinite goodness of God. Isn't that great? We talked about another key tool of the enemy to hinder healing, hinder healing, and that is the power of rejection. We talked about shame. We talked a little bit about anger. And that God is not a God who is distant or removed or someone who can't identify with the pain of rejection, but he can fully, he, he's completely, he can completely relate to the pain. And he specializes in binding of the brokenhearted, doesn't he? This is what he does. This, nobody knows this subject better. And then we kind of switched gears, and we started <clears throat> a conversation on spiritual warfare. And we did a quick survey of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we ended on the subject of authority. And that's kind of where I'd like to pick up this morning, is on the subject of kingdom authority. So let me start off by reading an amazing verse in Luke 10 that says this. This is Jesus speaking. He said to the disciples, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which was widely believed or um, interpreted to mean demonic powers, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. But then he says this too, nevertheless, let's, let's keep things in perspective, he's saying, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's, that's the, the, the primary goal. That's the main aspect of healing. We also talked yesterday about dominion this place of authority that Adam had been given. Romans 6.16 says something very powerful. It says this, Don't you know 
you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Adam was in a place of authority. God was here. Adam was here. But by coming into agreement with Satan, see, Satan was under Adam, but by coming into agreement with him, Adam then descended and came under Satan's authority. And this is critical to understanding deliverance ministry. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to open uh, the, the word to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Okay, we'll read verses 5 through 7. This is the temptation of, of Christ by Satan. It says, The devil took him up, took Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to them, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. What's interesting to me is Jesus didn't dispute that. So, again, what happened? This authority that was this, this place of dominion that Adam had was given away in the fall. Again, the fall was the most catastrophic event of all time, in all its implications. But the, here's the good news. Matthew 28, 18 says this. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what the first Adam gave away, what he lost, Jesus won back for us on the cross and through his triumphant resurrection three days later. Isn't that amazing? And we... It says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We get to ride on his coattails. And this authority has been given back to us. Now, why in the world does this matter? Why are we talking about authority like this? I think, in general, the church has lost sight of the real of the, of the real enemy, as well as the authority and power that Jesus has given to us. Satanists, people in the occult, people in witchcraft, involved with witchcraft and New Age, are tapped into this power. They are tapped into a supernatural power, which is, by the way, 100% counterfeit. And I believe it's time for the church to be awakened to the authority to... to, to um, our inheritance as followers of Christ, not just to be on the defensive all the time, to pray that the enemy won't harm us, but to go on the offensive, to take ground for the kingdom of God. Amen. So who is, del who is deliverance for? What This gift of deliverance, who, who is that for? And I think it might be helpful to give a definition of uh, deliverance again. And this is... Uh, this is Kurt Kessler's definition, and it may not line up with yours, but this is, this is how I look at the, the, the beautiful gift of deliverance. It's the removal of assignments, legal rights, and agendas ordered against us by the kingdom of darkness to do what? To burden, deceive, oppress, defile, enslave, and inhibit God's blessing. It's a house cleaning, okay? Sure will. And I think if it should be in your notes too. Hopefully the notes went around. Okay, so if anybody didn't get any notes, we can make sure you get a copy. Otherwise, let me, let me read it again. Deliverance is the removal of assignments, legal rights, and agendas ordered against us by the kingdom of darkness to burden deceive, oppress, defile, enslave, and inhibit God's blessing. Like salvation, deliverance is a gift of, of God that he makes available for everyone. 
But I believe that only followers of Christ can maintain their deliverance, right? Because in Luke 11, it talks about the ability for unclean spirits to come back um, unless all the doors are closed. Well, I believe that only as Christians, only Christians can maintain the deliverance. So this, this is a gift that God makes available to his followers. And let me just make this really clear. Being harassed or oppressed by dark spiritual forces does not mean we're possessed by one, okay? By dark spiritual forces. This isn't, we're not talking Hollywood or, or, anything, or anything remotely close to that. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So we can't be under management of two owners. However, why wouldn't we as Christians, as followers of Christ, the one true God, be targets for the enemy, right? So if this is true, if, if um, we can be harassed by, by the enemy, what would be ways that he would do it? How could the enemy harm us? Remember earlier, and again yesterday we talked about this in detail, about the choices that we make to choose life or death, to choose blessing or curse, Moses said, you know, to, as the Israelites were entering Canaan. We have the power to choose to obey and follow God's commandments or not, don't we? The breaking of God's laws is one way that the, a door can be opened for the enemy to come in and cause problems. So for me, to, to kind of get my head around this a little bit, I wanted to kind of uh, to take a, a look at law. And I don't think law isn't often something that we talk so much uh, about on, on a given Sunday morning, but what I've learned about the enemy is that he is extremely legalistic. And, and, and so what does that mean? And that's what I want to explore with you a little bit. Here's the first passage I'd like to read in that regard. It comes from Galatians 3, 1 verse 3. And this is Paul talking. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has, I have the ESV version, and he uses the word bewitched. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Who, who has caused you, in other words, to come under the power of witchcraft? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Then let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So if we were just to stop there and kind of isolate that, that passage in scripture, one might get the impression that the law is bad Let's just throw it out and not talk about it again. Except for something that Jesus said. And let's read that next in um, Matthew 5. I'd like to read that next. That's Matthew 5, 17 through 18, verse 20. Jesus said this, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to do that, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So in that case, if we were to take that passage in isolation, the law seems like it's still in place, right? So is somebody right and somebody's wrong? Is, is Paul right and Jesus wrong or Vice versa, is Jesus wrong and Paul's right? They're talking about two different things. And this is kind of how I see it. If, if, if we just kind of boil it down to kind of a, the nuts and bolts, the most simple way to look at it, to me it seems that Paul is talking about the law in terms of rules and regulations. In other words, doing and Jesus is talking about something more important, a more important aspect of the law, about the be being, the heart. What's going on in here? And isn't it interesting that in Jeremiah 31, it, 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 it foretold about the law, about a new covenant that we just we celebrated in, in communion this morning, and that Paul was, was, was talking about. 
it says in Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and I will put my law within them, and I will, listen to this, write it on their hearts. That's good. So law on the doing side was about sacrifice. Law on the being side was about mercy. Matthew 9.13 says this, Go and learn what this means. This is Jesus speaking. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Law was about circumcision of the flesh. Law that Jesus was talking about was circumcision of the heart. Romans 2.29 says this, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. The law required capital punishment for those caught up in witchcraft and divination and adultery. Jesus' law is about grace and forgiveness. And what did he tell the woman caught in adultery? I don't condemn you, but don't sin anymore. Sin no, go and sin no more. The law of doing is about washing of hands and eating only certain kinds of foods, kosher foods, right? The law that Jesus was interested in is about being clean or undefiled on the inside. And Jesus, I, I think this is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. It's Matthew 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says this, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Things like this, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile. And by the way, do you notice kind of a, do those things sound familiar? We, kind of, we read about those in the Ten Commandments, don't we? Murder, don't commit a murder, don't commit adultery, um, don't bear false witness about your neighbor, all these things. Don't steal. What's going on in here? This is, this is key. The law that Paul was talking about was based on works, righteousness, and legalism. You know, it's, it's amazing as I've, I've learned a little bit more. The subject really interests me, and I've, I've, I've studied a little bit about Jewish law, and it's complicated. It, it, maybe there's others here that have studied it too, and I mean, law can be talking about the Ten Commandments. It can be talking about the first five books of the Bible. It could be talking about the whole Old Testament. It could be talking about the rabbinic interpretations of all the laws on and on and on. For us, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around the, f the, the magnitude of the law. But, but, but in the Jewish faith, it's, it's huge. It, it's, um, kinda, their universe kind of revolves around it. But listen to what Jesus said. And this is something that he quoted from the Old Testament, by the way. He says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. This is the great commandment. This is the greatest law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. God is about love, about relationship with him and with others. And again, going back to what I said earlier, if we got these, th my, my wife says this all the time, if we could just get those two things right, <laughs> the world would be in a much better place, loving God with our whole heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In this context, I think it's then easier to understand when Jesus says things like this in Matthew 5, where he equates anger with murder, doesn't he? And he equates lust with adultery. Even in the Old Testament, it talks about the sin of rebellion and disobedience is like divination. It's that serious. So 
now I want to kind of come back around to what I'm talking about, about the enemy. To me, this is how I see things. It's that aspect of the law that both God and the kingdom of Satan are most interested. How are we doing here? How are we keeping the commands? And just like Adam, I don't think eating the fruit was the first sin. Something happened in his mind that led up to it. Could be a pride thing, could have been a rebellion thing, could have been a who knows, but eating the fruit was an outward manifestation of something that was going on inside. And it's the same thing with the Ten Commandments. You're not going to murder somebody if things are right inside, right? You're not going to steal if, some, if everything's right inside. It's this aspect of the law that the enemy is keenly interested in. And each of the Ten Commandments, I look at as kind of like armor. And when we break those, it's like a piece of the armor is taken off and we're exposed. Okay? And the enemy does take advantage. So that is one way the enemy can, can harm us, can bring harm to us, is through poor choices, through breaking God's laws and his commandments. Well, what's another way? Another way is sins committed against us. So it's not, we don't just reap the consequences of our choices, but we sometimes, sadly, reap the consequences of other people's poor choices, right? Mm -hmm. An example might be abuse of some kind. Could be a physical abuse, could be a sexual abuse, could be verbal abuse. It could be an injustice of some kind. Could be suffering from some kind of violent act. There was a, a gentleman who came in for ministry, I'd say about a year ago, and he, w he was, I think he must be in his early 50s, and he was a, an identical twin. For whatever reason, his dad kind of favored the brother, but he would beat the tar out of this guy at the drop of a hat. And this lasted until Jim was maybe in his, his teens when he was able, and then it stopped after he was able to kind of defend himself. But decades later, he was still in tremendous pain from the consequences of this act against him. And you could just see it on his face. When he walked in, it was like the weight of the world and just the pain and the agony. And he kept asking the question over, why? Why did my dad do this to me? Why? He couldn't. And as God began to bring healing to him, it, it was like we could physically see just a transformation. He, he, he looked like he became 15 years younger, right before our eyes, as the weight was lifted. The enemy had been harming him, bringing harm, and taking advantage of this abuse that he faced for all these years. Here's another way that the enemy can cause problems. Through trauma or accident of some kind or another. We had um, one lady come in for ministry who was deathly afraid of fire because as a kid, she was, her house caught on fire. And since then, she was, she was traumatized by it. And, and again, here was a way that the enemy, this was a door that the enemy, that was open to the enemy to walk in. I said this yesterday, but I want to say it again. The enemy is an equal opportunity oppressor. He doesn't care how young we are, what gender we are, what race, what, what, what uh, social status we have. He will, <laughs> he's like that. He will capitalize on, on doors that are open. And that was one that was open that, was, um, that had to have a um, particular um, stronghold for, for this young woman. We had a, a lady who came in for, for ministry after suffering from a couple car accidents. And in one car accident, her arm was completely shattered. 
and also her back was uh, like she could she was as sti stiff as a board. And when she went through ministry, she was she had full range in her arm again, and she said later she was able to dance for the first time in 23 years. This is something. <laughs> yeah, isn't God cool? This is what God is like. And this is what the enemy is like, okay? I wonder if that lady that suffered from, oh, getting on another subject there, but there's a lady in Luke who was bent over from a spirit, and I don't know what that was, whether that was arthritis or some fear. It's hard to say. I kind of speculate sometimes what, what, what kind of spirit was, was harming her in, in, in the book of Luke. So let's talk about something else that maybe isn't talked about so much in church. And that's the issue of curse. And that the just the very word curse, the, the very word curse can kind of create strong reactions. Like, that's kind of creepy. Or, you know, isn't that the Old Testament? Uh, don't they talk about curse in the Old Testament? And, you know, doesn't that apply today? But the fact is, is that curse is still around and it's mentioned over 230 times, by the way, in both the Old Testament as well as the New. And for, for Hebrew scholars, I, I apologize if I'm going to butcher this word, <laughs> but here's how I see... Here's, we got a lot of Hebrew scholars. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so I see two categories of curse. One is the kingdom of light kind of the origins there and one is in the kingdom of, of darkness origins there so here's the first type arar arar i'm not sure i'm not sure how you pronounce that which is to say the judgment by god or removal of blessing as a consequence for disobedience breaking his laws and here's I put a list on the notes um, together of a few. What, what would be ways that a curse might be affected or empowered? One is worshiping false gods, idolatry. Jeremiah 17, there's an interesting reference to curse. It's about f putting faith in man, works, and own abilities above God. Malachi talks about, refers to about holding back or even robbing God. There's curses for um, cursing Israel. And if you, there's, there's curse, you, you read about Satan being cursed, and you read about after the fall how there was curse that, that covered the land. It's, curse is used a lot. But if you want to read a couple chapters that are just loaded with uh, information on curse, you can read Deuteronomy 27 and, and 28. There's curses that are... Um, talked about for disobedience, for dishonoring parents, for oppression of others, for injustice, especially against the weak and the, and the vulnerable, um, murder, things like this, which, by the way, again, it sounds like the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? So the consequences of a curse, there seems to be things that happen. One is there seems to be an effect on material provision, on, on mental health, even physical health, sometimes even physical locations. You ever walked into a place and it just didn't feel right in your spirit? Like there's something defiling, defiled about this place or something's not right? It can be like here are our circumstances. It can feel like here are our circumstances and we're always underneath them. They're always, something's always pushing us down instead of us being above our circumstances. Now, why in the world would God allow curse? Why would he allow that? And I don't think, I don't think it's because he's mean. I don't think it's because he's cruel and he wants to drop the hammer on us if we mess up. I think, number one, he is a just God, right? He's a holy God, and we always have to keep that in perspective. But I think also, and as I've seen in ministry, he is just chomping at the bit to break the power of curse over our lives if, if we invite him, if we ask him to, because he wants to be the superhero 
in our lives. He wants to prove to us that he's the source of blessing and our provision and our healing. He wants to be the hero in our lives. So now let's talk about the other category of a curse. A curse could be, like I said, inspired from Satan's kingdom. And I would define it like this, an invocation of evil upon a person, action, or thing with the goal to destroy, defile, or desecrate. Now who uses curses in that way? Well, people involved with the occult and witchcraft, they do this in a ritualistic way and de deliberately will try to impose curse on people to, to dominate, to harm, to whatever they do. But let me tell you this, most of us in here would not do that, right? We would not go join a, a cult or a coven or anything like that. But I can tell you there are amazing power, there's amazing power in the words that we all speak. And the same power can come through our own words. Let me see if any of this resonates, any of these comments resonate. Has, you don't have to raise your hands or anything, but I just want to, maybe in your minds, think, has anybody in any way communicated to you that you're worthless, that you don't have what it takes, that you're not attractive, that you're gonna fail, that you're unwanted. Do those words hurt? Do those words have power? We had a woman that came in for ministry and she, she was, um, by all measures of the word, a very successful person. She was a professional. She was a manager of, uh, actually, she was a nurse. She was like a head nurse, and she managed a lot of other nurses. Um, God had put her in a place of authority over a lot of people and, and uh, responsibility over a lot of people. But when she came in for ministry, there was one thing that it was just like when, when there was a, an opening that she could talk about it, just out of her mouth was just gushing the pain and the torment that she felt and that she experienced over a shaming event that happened early on in her career where she was in front of her colleagues in a, in a public setting and a person that was her boss shamed her and it was very cruel and humiliated her in front of all of her peers. This was killing her, and by all outward appearances, she was fine and she was doing well, but this had tremendous power. And until that word, the power of that was broken, you see, it's like the enemy can just kinda, he just kinda inhabits the power of those, of those words. And finally, after that was broken, she was set free. Scripture has a lot to say about this kind of stuff. James 3.8, by the way, says this. No human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now listen to this. It says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings, and curses. Proverbs 18.21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's a lot of power. The words that we speak, including over ourselves, can bless or curse, and they have the power to lift people up or tear people down. Words can empower the enemy to afflict. And I think that's why this puts what Jesus comments in perspective in Matthew 5 where he says, let what you say just be yes or just say no. Anything else comes from, the de from, from evil. 
Here's another type of curse that we deal with very often in ministry, and that's what we would call a generational curse. Now, here again, I'm like, God, is that fair? There's gener- generational curse? But he, I guess he gets to make the rules. <laughs> and there's a lot of verses that talk about generational curse. Let me just read a few. One's from Lamentations 5, 7. It says, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Jeremiah 32, 18 says this, You show steadfast love to thousands, but repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. And Numbers 14, 18 says this, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. We had a, one of my favorite, most favorite people in the whole world came in for ministry one day. And um, he's, he's a dear, dear brother. And I don't know if he's stepped foot outside the state of Minnesota, let alone the country. But as we were going through the generational stuff and breaking off the... It was crazy what happened. We, the power that the enemy had on him th- that he apparently had inherited from somebody up the generational line who must have been involved with some pretty nasty stuff, the occult or witchcraft or something. But it was amazing the freedom that he received for praying like this. And he didn't even know his grandparents or great-grandparents, okay? But nonetheless, it still had a power. Let me, let me put this in another way. And again, you don't have to raise your hands, but in your minds, can you think of families where there just doesn't seem to be freedom in one aspect or another? Could be an addiction of some kind, could be abuse of some kind, could be perversion of some kind, could be you name it. But it just seems like it's passed down to the next generation, then the next, then the next, then the next, then the next. Generational curse. But here's the good news. <laughs> I don't like talking about curses, by the way. It just it's like I like talking about the good news, like the good good stuff. Galatians 3.13 is good news. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the power of the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There is power. He makes this available. By his wounds, we're healed. We're cleansed. We're delivered. We're saved. We're forgiven. Who wouldn't want to choose this God? Who wouldn't want that? So how do we break off this kind of stuff? The power or influence of the enemy or stuff like curse, you know, how, how does that go away? Well, it's not a rite. It's not a ritual. We don't make you spin around ten times or jump up and down or stuff like that. But we follow, there's a, there's a simple model in 1 John 1, nine, And it just simply says this, if we confess our sins, you've heard this I'm sure a million times, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and he'll cleanse us from our all unrighteousness. So it starts with repentance. Aligning our thoughts and our worldview with God's, that's number one. And that sometimes takes an act of God to help us see things from the way he does. The next thing can be really tough because this can be a matter of humbling ourselves. And, and that's the confession. It's just, you know, God already knows anyway, right? So we're not telling him anything that he doesn't know. But by confessing our sins, it kinda, it's just like it gets them out into the light, it exposes them to the light where they lose power. And there's something freeing about that. Things that maybe we wanted just to keep hidden or in the dark. 
they lose their power. Maybe we felt it was just safe to keep those you know, under, under wraps or undercover. We don't want people to know about that. But by getting them out, that in itself is, there's amazing power of healing there. Amen. <laughs> and then there's another, there, here's another challenging step, and that's forgiveness. And I'm talking about both granting forgiveness as well as receiving forgiveness. And this is how I see forgiveness. I, I see forgiveness being like this, it being a key. And so there's chains with padlocks wrapped around us. And forgiveness, by extending somebody else's forgiveness, somebody who's harmed us, it's like you're taking that key and you're unlocking the padlock. So the enemy, who is very legalistic, it disarms him. He doesn't have that power anymore to oppress, to harass, to torment, okay? So forgiveness, both giving forgiveness, but also receiving it. And sometimes that's harder, receiving God's forgiveness for something maybe that we felt uh, we couldn't be forgiven for. And again, uh, I mentioned this yesterday, but a week ago we prayed with a lady who, she just didn't feel like she could be forgiven after the things that uh, she apparently she felt that were so bad, um, she didn't think that God wanted anything to do with her. But it was amazing to see once she was able not only to grant forgiveness to those that had harmed her, but receive forgiveness, it looked like she was going to fly out of the room. <laughs> because her eyes, see this is, to me, this is the greatest aspect of healing. The greatest aspect of healing isn't your arm feeling better, or your heart feeling better. Do you know what the greatest aspect of healing is? It's having our eyes open wider to the love of God. Not in realizing He really does love me, and He really is interested in me. And He's not a God of wrath in the sense that He wants to pummel me when I mess up. And so out of that, we respond. That's the fear of God. We respond out of that. And we want to do the right thing. We want to follow his commandments. We want to be obedient. We want to follow his rules. And then the last step to, <clears throat> to the ministry process is cleansing. So we're forgiven, right? If, if we confess, we repent, we do all those things, there's forgiveness. And then we do one more thing. We receive cleansing by telling with the authority that we've been given, with the authority that you've been given, by the way, that anything unclean that has had any power over us, we say, you have no right. I'm a daughter, I'm a son of the Most High God, and by the authority given me, by Jesus Christ and by his blood, I am telling you, you're out of here. And that dog that's been biting at your ankle maybe for years and years and years that we've just kind of maybe grown used to, we're going to tell it, you got to leave. I'm taking authority over that. You're gone. Okay. So I just thank you again uh, for the opportunity to, to be with you. Thank you, Paul, so much um, for a chance to be here this weekend. I'm, um, I would like to extend an invitation right now before we close. Um, I'd like to extend an invitation. If you would like to, you can just stay seated right where you're at, but I'd like to lead you through a prayer. Okay, and um, let's, all right, let's do that. And so what I'll do is I'll just say some words, and if you could repeat after me, okay? If you feel you would like to do that, you're invited. This isn't a have-to thing, but a, an invitation. You want to do it. <laughs> okay. Don't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so this is between you in the Lord, not you and your neighbor or any, anything like that. This is between you and the Lord right now.
So, yeah, please repeat after me. Father God, I give you praise, glory, and honor. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you that through your triumphant resurrection from the grave, you defeated the power of sin, death, and the devil. And you overcame the power of curse. Thank you, Jesus, for your gift of salvation, healing, and deliverance. I humble myself before you, releasing to you any pride, unbelief, or personal agenda. I ask you, Jesus, to be Lord of my life. I choose to follow you only from this day on. I confess and repent of any sin, me or my ancestors, have committed against you that would have enabled curse to affect our family line, especially through the sins of idolatry, witchcraft, involvement with the occult, Freemasonry, and sexual sin, or any covenant we knowingly or unknowingly made with the kingdom of darkness. I ask your forgiveness for these sins and all others. And as an act of my will, I also choose to forgive anyone from my heart who may have sinned against me. I ask that you break the power of any ungodly soul tie as well as the power of any word curse. Thank you, Jesus, for the work you're doing. I ask that you send your Holy Spirit now to fill me. I receive your healing, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And in the authority you've given me, I tell all unclean spirits, especially spirits of fear, rejection, or shame, any spirits of depression, death, and infirmity, leave me now in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Bless you guys. Bless you. So now, in a moment, after I pronounce the benediction, I want you to just spin around groups of two or three, at the most four, but two or three, something like that, and uh, do the wrap-up, mop-up campaign. Just pray for one another individually. There are things that you want to share. Feel free. You don't have to share anything, but if you want to, you can. Share with somebody else. And we pray for one another. We always do this every week. We pray for one another. We finish any business. We care for one another through prayer. The Bible says, confess your faults to whom? One another. It doesn't say there, confess your faults to God. Confess your faults to one another. We're brothers, remember? We're sisters. This is family. So we're in, our, in the family together. So we're not worried about confessing within the family. It stays here. It doesn't go out from here. So we confess to one another. We get prayer for one another. That you may be healed. My, that's wonderful. I want to be healed. I want to receive healing. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna bless you now. I'm not gonna curse you. I'm gonna bless you. <laughs> yeah, aren't you glad for that? I'm gonna give you a blessing. And it says in that blessing that the Lord's favor is on you. His face. When you, when you see the face of, of God in the scripture, it's God looking. And when he looks on you, that's favor. That's blessing. You don't want him to turn his face. You want to, you want to see his face. You want to receive. You, want to, you, know, you see your dad. You see your mom. There's, there's something being received. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. In fact, the Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you. And the result of that is peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just turn now. Just turn Turn to somebody. Find somebody near you. Somebody that you can pray with. If you want to move, it's legal to move. Legal to go somewhere. If you want to pray with somebody, if you want somebody to pray with you, you can find somebody. I'll tell you, Kurt Craig, Craig loves to pray with people. So if, if you want to receive prayer or prophetic word from someone, just uh, find, find somebody and uh, turn it into a prayer meeting now. That's what it is. This becomes a prayer meeting.